You are listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. This is our Advent series, Wrapped in Flesh. Good morning. Good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. Indeed, a great privilege and honor to be with you this morning as we look at God's Word together. Um, if you've been with us for a little bit, um, you've noticed that we have um, been looking at and anticipating our Advent season um, by looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, two weeks ago, we evaluated the Word of God, looking at how um, Nick, Pastor Nick did a great job of preaching through that text, talking about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Last week, we explained the witness of God. We talked about John being a man sent from God. And he was sent to testify of that great light. This week, we'll have the awesome opportunity to examine the wonder of God. And we're going to look at one verse. We're going to look at verse 14, John 1, 14. And hear the word of the Lord as read over you. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son, begotten from the father, full of grace and full of truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do praise you and ask that you would be with us. As always, take my little, make much of it. Glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The temptation is real. The the temptation is loud. And the temptation is very convincing. The temptation is to believe that you have to do something in order to be accepted by God. The temptation is to believe that you have to prove that you are worth saving by Jesus. The temptation is to believe that Jesus' sacrifice is not enough. And it's insufficient without you playing some type of role within the process. The temptation is to try and earn God's love by fixing yourself up to become something acceptable to God. Temptation is to try to earn God's love by making yourself more than you already are before God and even before man. The temptation is to try to earn God's favor through your faithfulness and your own personal obedience. The temptation is to try to prove your worth, your own personal worth through your own achievements and accolades. The temptation is most accurately manifested in Genesis 11. At the Tower of Babel, where man's pride leads him in an everlasting battle to try and reach God's threshold apart from his provision. And if that's you this morning, if if that's your current situation this morning, I want you to reconsider these words found in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. These words serve as the kryptonite 
to every person who desires to earn anything from God. Much like in Genesis 11, God comes down in the middle of our feeble attempts to try and reach the threshold of heaven through our works, through our merit, and through our own creative innovation. And he kindly reminds us that it's always easier for him to reach us than it is for us to reach him. Notice with me these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And because the word became flesh, there's four realities that we can can celebrate in this morning. Number one, say he is our provision. Jesus is our provision, amen? Not only is he our provision, but he's also our victory. He's not only our provision and victory, but he is our perfection. And lastly, but definitely not least, because the word became flesh, he is near to us despite our weaknesses. You know, I remember it, I remember it like it was yesterday. I received my license to preach on July 18, 2001, and it was the summer of my sophomore year in college. I was about 20 years old, and I was invited to come and preach at my first, first youth conference at my church, Liberty Temple Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan. My passage was simple. It was Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And in that verse, it says these, this, these words, adopt the same attitude that is of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. I began to preach and, and, and I said something that I still regret to this day. I said, when God became a man, He was 50% God and 50% man because it takes 50% of something to make something whole. (laughs) Immediately after service, I was quickly greeted by one of my favorite deacons in the church, Deacon Seymour. He kindly took my arm and quickly escorted me to the nearest hallway and he began to explain to me our verse um, today in much greater detail. He looked at me as a young 20-year-old who who had a a right passion for God, but had a wrong theology. And he quoted these words over me. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as a one and only son, begotten from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Notice with me this morning that when Christ was born, God became man. I love what the Life Application Bible says about this. It says, before Christ came, people could only know God partially. But after Christ came, people could know God fully because he became visible and tangible in Christ. In other words, Christ is the perfect expression of God in human form. The two most common errors people make about Jesus are to minimize his humanity to minimize his divinity. Jesus is both God and man. 
This verse that we're looking at today, John chapter one, is it, it, it comes in a, a, a quadrant of the four Christological scriptures that are, are are announced throughout scripture about God being both God and man, not half man and half God. You already talked about John chapter one, so I'm not going to go over that. But listen to the words in Colossians in Colossians one fifteen through 20, talking about Jesus. It says he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Listen to the prophetic word of our brother Paul in the book of Philippians to the church of Philippi when he says, who existing in the form of God. Do not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to be held on to. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he became, came as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. And lastly, but definitely not least, listen to the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3. He says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers and by the prophets at different times in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I tell you again that when Christ was born, God became man. Love what D.A. Carson says in his commentary about this. He says, the word, God's very self-expression, who was with God and who was God, became flesh. He donned our humanity, save only our sin. God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical man. When the word became flesh, God became so what is the significance of this? What is the significance of, of, of God becoming man? Amen. <laughs> so he can work through him. You know, this is the most amazing event in human history. This is the most amazing event in human history because it reminds us that the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, who's infinitely holy, took on human nature and lived among us as both God and man at the same time. It means the finite, excuse me, the infinite became finite. It means the invisible became visible. It means the omnipotent God became vulnerable to sin, sickness, and even death. It means the omniscient God, meaning the all-knowing God, became a learner and a student. It means the most powerful being became limited by his own personal development. It means the all-powerful became controlled by his environment. It means the eternal word of God confined himself to space, time, and even allotment. It means the supernatural one reduced himself 
to the natural. Love what Dr. William Cook at Southern Seminary has to say about this in his book, John, Jesus Christ is God. He says, John is making a powerful comment concerning the incarnation, that the word became flesh with all the frailty associated with being a human being. Notice with me, though, that although the word became flesh, the word never ceased from being God. And because he never ceased from being God, there are two main implications that we can take away from the word becoming flesh. Here's implication number one, that God took on humanity's weakness so we no longer have to. It's a good reminder for us that the word became flesh to give us victory over sin. Now, I hope this is a place of hope for you this morning. I hope this is a place of freedom for you this morning because that means you don't have to become perfect because Jesus already became weak. And because he became weak and because he took on flesh, he invites you to forsake perfection and pursue faithful perseverance. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus has taken on and overcome the temptations and longings of the flesh yet without sin. So that despite our weaknesses and our own propensity towards sin, we might find our victory through his strength and through his righteousness. The word became flesh. So we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible mean by flesh? You know, the word in Greek for flesh is sarx. And it's the same word that Paul used to describe man's nature with all of his weakness and tendency towards sin. And there's four characteristics of the flesh that I just want to flesh out really quick for us. Number one, the flesh, the flesh is corruptible. What does that mean? It means that the flesh is tainted. It's debased. It's ruined and depraved by sin. The flesh ages. It deteriorates. It decays. And eventually, yes, it dies. But there's hope in understanding of Jesus taking on corruptible flesh. Because Jesus became flesh to remedy the corruption of the flesh. You remember what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, the flesh is not only corruptible, the flesh is also dishonorable. The flesh is not what God created it to be. That the flesh does not exist in the image of God that God intended. Its intended purpose is glorifying itself and not God. And we find hope that the word became flesh because in the word becoming flesh, Jesus became flesh to rectify the dishonoring of the flesh. Not only is the flesh corruptible, not is only dishonorable, the flesh is also weak. It is impotent, it is feeble, it, it is frail, and it is fragile. 
It actually has no strength to please God, nor to save itself. I love what Romans 8 says about this. This is what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh. God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus became flesh to redeem the weakness of the flesh. So not only is the flesh corruptible, not not only is it dishonorable, not only is it weak, lastly, but definitely not least, the flesh is temporal. The, The flesh is of the earth and it cannot live beyond its natural life. And Jesus came in the flesh to restore the natural body of the flesh and the natural purposes of the flesh. First Corinthians 15, 47 and 49 puts it this way. It says the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have bore the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. So why is this important? What, what significance does it have for you personally? This is a good reminder for us that God did the hardest part of coming down and abiding with us. I say it once again. God did the hardest part. God did the hard thing of coming down and abiding with us so we don't have to do the impossible thing and try to reach him by our own works, our own efforts and our own strength. I hope that serves as a point of hope for you this morning. I hope that serves as a point of encouragement for you this morning. That God did the hard thing because the word of God, the eternal word of God became flesh for us. When I was in college, I had a favorite show I used to always watch. Maybe you used to watch it as well. I put a link up. I don't know if it'll come up, but it's, it's simply called Undercover Boss. Anybody watch that show? Yeah, a little bit. Right now it's on rerun, so nobody really watches it anymore. I still watch it from time to time because I like that show. And the whole premise of the show is to have someone, a boss or someone of authority figure to come down and to uh, dress incognito and, and to, to be in disguise and be among the workers, to be among the people that is in is his or her company or his or her business. And they can, when that person comes down and they're able to be among the people in, in disguise, they can really see the conversations that are really going on. They, they can really understand the, the complexities and the hardships. They understand what's really happening behind the curtain because sometimes we're in a place of authority. Sometimes it's hard to to engage with somebody in authority because you see them in such a high light. But I love this show because an undercover boss allows the boss to become a worker. (laughs) It applies the employee, the person in charge to become the employer to become an employee. Notice with me, though, as a boss gets in disguise and, and starts to be around those people who, that, he, that works for him or her, that boss never really loses his or her authority. They're still the boss, 
They're still in charge. They're just closer. They're nearer. See, although the character and the image has changed, the position and the authority remains the same. The boss remains the boss, even incognito. Even when you don't recognize it, even when you can't comprehend it, the boss is still the boss. So Jesus not only took our on humanity's weakness so we don't have to. Number two, the second implication of this is that God sent Jesus to be our perfection. Christ became flesh means that he was the perfect teacher. He was the perfect sacrifice and he's the perfect example. If you've been with us for any a lot of time through this sermon series, especially through Matthew, we, we see that through the trifecta that I like to call it of Jesus, him being the, the, the prophet, priest, and king. As our prophet, he's a perfect teacher, meaning that in Jesus' life, we see how God thinks and therefore how we should think. Remember Philippians 2 verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He's our perfect teacher and he's our perfect prophet. He's not only our perfect teacher, he's also our perfect sacrifice. Jesus came as a sacrifice for all sins and his death satisfied God's requirements for the removal of sin. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 puts it this way. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So he's our perfect teacher, our perfect prophet. He's our perfect sacrifice. He's our perfect peace, but he's also our perfect example and our perfect king. And as our perfect king, he he shows us the model of what we are to become. He shows us how to live and he gives us the power to actually live that way. First Peter 2.21 says it this way, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. It's a good reminder for us that the word became flesh to be our perfection despite our weaknesses. Listen to what Tony Evans says about this in the study Bible. He says he is fully human, so he cried as an infant. But he is fully divine and gave life to his mother. He is fully human, so he had to sleep. But he is fully divine and can raise the dead. Our God experienced what it is to be human, yet without sinning. Hunger, pain, temptation, grief, hardship, rejection. You face no category of human experience your Savior has not endured. So we have to ask ourselves, you know what, that's great for Jesus. <laughs> I'm glad that he became fl- flesh. But how does, this, how does Jesus' perfection affect me? How does it affect me? I know Jesus became flesh and I know he dwelt among, but but how does it affect 
me. Notice with me in the verse, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory. Notice those two words. He dwelt among us. We observed his glory. He became flesh. We saw God's glory. He became man. He serves as our perfect sacrifice. The word dwelt here means to pitch a tent or to live in a tent. It's what DMX used to say when I was in high school back in the day. Uh, he'd come up to set up shop, to set up, set, set up where he's going to be residing at and where he's going to make his residence at. This is a beautiful reminder that not only did Jesus take on our weakness, not only did he take on flesh, but then he had the audacity to dwell among us. And in him dwelling among us, we saw something we couldn't deny. We saw his glory. This word beheld or observed in the Greek means actually means that we seen with with the human eye. In other words, John is saying that he and others actually saw the word made flesh. Hence, when John said we beheld or we observed his glory, he was saying that we actually saw the Shekinah glory. We actually saw God's very presence Dwelling among us, living among us, communing among us. It's a good reminder for all of us that the human existence of Jesus is not up for discussion. The human experience of Jesus is not up for dialogue. And the humanness of Jesus is not up for debate. Why? Because John and countless others said that they, the word became flesh. He dwelt among them and they saw something from him. They saw glory. Actually, what they saw was God's Shekinah glory. In the Old Testament, God's Shekinah glory would, is, is, would, would represent the physical presence of God's nearness. The word Shekinah means dwelling. And it is the the visible manifestation of God amongst his people. And often, especially in the temple or the tabernacle, God would physically feel that place through his glory. And through his presence. The Shekinah glory was not just a place of presence. The Shekinah glory was also a place of intimacy. Listen to what uh, Exodus 33, 11 says. It says the Lord would speak with Moses face to face. Just as a man speaks with his friend. Shekinah glory was not just a place, uh, symbolized his presence. It also symbolized a place of intimacy. Symbolizes a place where God would talk to you. Face to face, much like he did Moses. Remember, the word became flesh to be near to us in our weaknesses. 
Listen to the words of Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So again, preacher, good job. Thank you for telling me about Jesus becoming flesh. Thank you for telling me that he dwelt among us. But what did that glory look like? What did it resemble? (laughs) What was the resemblance of God's glory in Jesus? We find that at the end of that verse. Since the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we observed his glory. The glory as the one and only begotten from the father, full of grace and full of truth. See, the glory as the one and only speaks to Jesus displaying the same essential glory as the Father. It it speaks to the Trinity. It it speaks to Jesus and God being one and, and being essential in nature. The only begotten one or the only one from 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 God sent from God means to be beloved like no other. Or it means the only beloved one. You see, Jesus is God's only and unique son. And he is loved and beloved. He's beloved and he's adored by God like no other. The emphasis here is on Jesus uniqueness. Jesus is one of a kind and enjoys a relationship with God. Unlike all believers who are called children and said to be born of God. It speaks to his singular uniqueness or his unique prominence. By this word, the only begotten or the only son of God, John emphasized the exclusive character of their relationship between the father and the son in the Godhead. This word actually has has a foundation in the Old Testament talking about Abraham and Isaac. You remember Abraham prayed to God for a son and he gave him a son, Isaac, after a long time, almost 25 years of waiting for a son. Listen to what Hebrews 11, 17 says about this. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet he was offering his one and only son. Hope this encourages us this morning because it reminds us of the exclusivity of Jesus. It's not Jesus and another. It's not Jesus and Allah. It's not Jesus and Buddhism or Hinduism. It reminds us that Jesus is eternally unique and should be eternally adored and worshiped. So how was God's glory seen in Jesus? We see that at the end. It says, full of grace and full of truth. (laughs) Now, now, before we get started, we have to talk about grace a little bit because there is such a misnomer about what grace means, especially within the world. In the Bible, the word grace means far more than the world uses it. In the world, the word grace means The quality of something. 
means something being beautiful or something being joyful. The word grace also could mean anything that has loveliness, like an act of grace, a word of grace, or maybe a person who acts in grace. The word grace in the world could also mean a gift. It's a quid pro quo relationship, something for something. It's a favor that's always extended to a friend. Now, the favor is all usually done freely. You do it because you love the person. Nothing is usually expected in return. However, the favor is always done for a friend or a close associate. To God, grace is more than a favor extended to a friend. When the Bible talks about grace, it has something totally different in mind. Grace is the love that dwells within the very nature of God. Grace is the kindness that God freely gives, not to just his friends, but specifically to his enemies. Romans 5, 8 and 10 puts it really well. It says, for God proved his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of the son. Then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Notice with me, church, the difference between God's grace and the world's grace. Whereas man provides favor for his friends and thereby can be said to be gracious, God does a thing unheard of among men. God has given his very son to die for his enemies. And through that act, he has shown that he is the perfect embodiment of grace, full of beauty, full of joy, full of loveliness and goodness, and full of kindness and love freely, Demonstrated. I know it's hard to show this type of love, especially to those who don't deserve it. But I want to encourage you to seek God for the strength to do it. Not because that person deserves your forgiveness or that person deserves your grace, but actually just because of the opposite reason. I believe in the church, we have misconstrued a lot of different terms, specifically the word forgiveness. And when God offer, has you offer grace to someone who doesn't, doesn't deserve it, it doesn't mean that you agree with, the, with what that person has done or who that person is. When you offer forgiveness to someone, it doesn't mean that you agree with them hurting you or abusing you. What it does mean as you offer grace to someone who doesn't deserve it is that you're looking at them and you're telling them, I personally relinquish judgment over your life. I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to allow God to deal with the thing you did to me, but I'm going to walk and I'm going to forgive you even though you don't deserve it. I don't agree with what you've done to me. I don't agree with the pain. I don't agree with the sorrow. 
I don't agree with the, the way that you're still acting. I don't agree, but yet I give grace. Church family, especially during these holiday seasons, I pray that we not only hear how Jesus is full of grace and full of truth, but we also can embody that grace that Jesus so freely embodies. That we can offer grace to those who simply don't deserve it. Our enemies. Not because we agree. Not because they deserve. but Because we want to embody and reflect and exemplify who Jesus is. By our walk. And by our commitment to his word. Full of grace, full of truth. And much like grace, truth is also misunderstood. Truth, notice with me, truth is not something to be known. Truth is something to be done. John says in John 8, 31, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Notice with me that truth is the knowledge and the experience of true reality as opposed to false reality. True is diametrically opposed to sham and to hypocrisy. It permits no compromise with evil. It abstains from the very appearance of evil. It is regarding truth in every aspect of a person. Believing it. Reverencing it, speaking it, acting it, hoping in it, and rejoicing in it. The fact that Jesus is both full of grace and full of truth helps us to see that Christ is the very embodiment of God. That Christ is all that God is and all that God does. Church family, I hope you're encouraged this morning. Hope you're encouraged. At the fact that the word became flesh and because the word became flesh, he is our provision. And that means there's salvation in no one else. There's no salvation in your merits. There's no salvation in your efforts. There's no salvation of you trying to get it right. He is our provision for our, for our righteousness before God. The word became flesh means that he is our victory. That there's no other victory found except in King Jesus. The word became flesh means that he is our perfection. There is no other way to be perfected before God or to live in unity or, or to live in harmony with God outside of Christ. And lastly, because the word became flesh, he is near to us despite our weaknesses. Church family, remember that there is comfort in no other. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and we do thank you. Thank you that the word became flesh. Thank you that you did the hard part to be near to us. And because you have done the hard part, you ask us to do the, the simple thing of trusting, submitting, and living for King Jesus. Help us now, Lord, in every way. Help us to love you and to seek you as you have revealed yourself to be in the scriptures. Holy Spirit, if there's someone under my sound of my voice who don't know you or is walking far away from you, would you draw near now? 
Would you convict hearts and would you provide comfort through the knowledge of Jesus being their provision? Forgive us, God, of trying to earn your love through our merit, through our accomplishments, through the things we do for you. There's nothing we can do for you that is greater than what you've already done for us in Jesus. So our hearts rejoice today. I pray freedom and I pray blessing on every person under the sound of my voice. Pray that you would help them to relinquish the endless task of trying to make you love us and just accept the love that you have poured out in your son on the cross on our behalf. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.